Warm greetings to you on this beautiful midsummer day. Well, I guess it's not technically midsummer if you count May 21 as the beginning of summer. But the wonderful thing about August, even though it signals um, the closing weeks of summer, the great thing, isn't it, about being in a, an educational institution like we're in is that fall isn't drudgery. Fall is excitement because um, we have a full roster of students back, and that's for those of us who live and work and study um, in this community, that's all that makes a difference. The text that we're looking at today is Philippians 2. It's a text that might be familiar to many of you. I know that when I first um, became a committed follower of Christ as a young adult, I joined a Bible study, and this, the book of Philippians was the very first book we studied. And I loved it. I ate it up. But I have come back to it again and again and again over, over the years. Um, I think in this, this particular chapter, but also in scripture in general, there's often paradoxes, puzzles, things that we need to ponder that keep us coming back to a text over and over again, trying to um, uncover the layers of meaning, meaning in it, enough food for reflection for, the life, for a lifetime. And one of the paradoxes that I wanted us to just reflect on together today is one I've thought about a lot. And it's in this text, two qualities that are in this text that often seem polar opposites, humility and ambition. I think it's important that we get this right as we try to be followers of Jesus Christ. So I ask you these questions. Is it right to be ambitious as a Christian? If so, under what circumstances? Is it possible to be humble and ambitious? Think about it in the terms of your career, your studies, your ministry. I always find it fascinating to read job ads, not because I'm looking, but because sometimes I have to write them. And one of the things you see in reading job ads is that being ambitious is a highly desired quality in lots of workplaces, the drive to achieve, to succeed. But in this text, we're warned against ambition. And I think probably all of us have met very, very ambitious people, and sometimes we don't want to be around them. So I find that many Christians, and I count myself among them, have this deep ambivalence about ambition and even some confusion about what it means to be humble. Are they opposite? Can they exist together? We do have reason to be cautious about ambition because the text is very clear. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Or as the message paraphrases it, put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. 
That's not usually the, the definition of ambition, is it? But the theme is echoed in many places in scripture. Um, just one other, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, the same theme. Do not seek your own good, but the good of others. So I've pondered through the years what it really means to regard others as better than yourself or to serve others, not yourself. Because sometimes this very quality can actually be crippling. I'm a professional counselor by training, and in my early career, I worked with students in a university counseling center. And over and over, I witnessed the, the heartache, the devastation, the depression that often comes with people who struggle by thinking more highly of others than they think about themselves. And I'm talking about people with really devastating low self-esteem, um, deep feelings, deep, deep feelings of inferiority, who have absolutely no trouble thinking that others are better than themselves. In fact, it, it's their root story. And it's often immobilizing. Um, and though this affects, I think, all people, in my own life, and my own work, I've seen that it's often a particular issue for women who've been socialized to put others' needs ahead of their own, always thinking of others besides themselves, to the point where sometimes they lose their identity and worth. But ministry, too, can often lead to this kind of thinking. Um, you know, Christ says, I've come not to be served, but to serve, and people serve and serve and serve and think of others, others, others first, not themselves, to the point of burnout. So that can't be what the text means, right? It's like the enemy can get in there and take a virtue and twist it. So something that's supposed to be holy actually becomes uh, a barrier, to our own growth and to kingdom growth. So this can't be what it means. It's a distortion of the enemy. Um, so Paul's the one saying it, but all we have to do is look at the life of Paul and realize that the opposite of ambition isn't complacency, right? Because he was anything but complacent. He was a man of enormous confidence and ability and boldness, and we might even say drive. He traveled all over the Mediterranean world. He was tireless in his ministry. He entered into unknown situations. You get the feeling that Paul could stand up and mount a very good argument. So we've got to figure this out, right? What's it really meaning? I'm going to tell you another story about why I ponder this. And since we're in a school, I think it's um, important for us to think this through. This is a story... I call it the tale of two students, comes from not this um, institution, but from a previous one where I worked. So let me tell you about these two, they happen to both be young men, uh, seminarians. One was a really humble guy, if that would be how people would describe him. Didn't put on airs, loved the Lord, a really likable, likable young man. And he came before this credentials committee, an examining committee, and the question was put to him, where do you see yourself going in ministry? And he said, 
I see myself in a small church. I think that's where I'll serve. I think that's what God's calling me to, just a small rural community where I can enter into that community and love people. One of the examiners, after he left the room, said this, What's with that guy? Doesn't he have any ambition? When I was his age, I wanted to lead the largest church in the city. Just think about that. I'm not going to make a judgment right now. The second student, also at the same time period, very capable, very likable, but he was known as an ambitious guy. Same question put to him. Where do you see yourself heading? And he pointed across the hall to the president's office. And he said, I want to be sitting in that chair. And I'm charting a career path to get there. Think about it. Is either one of these two positions inherently better or more holy or the kind of pastor if you were on a search committee would want to hire? We're going to come back to this at the end. But to our question, how do we, how do we handle these two things? Humility, ambition, does one cancel out the other? How do we get it right? How do we think about it as followers of Christ? Well, fortunately, <laughs> Scripture tells us if we ponder it and think it through and spend a long time trying to get at the heart of it, and it's found in the following verses of this text, um, Philippians 2, starting at verse 5 to 8, where it begins by saying, think of yourselves the way Jesus thought of himself. So this is going to be our key somehow. Though he was in the form of God, he did not e regard equality with God as something to be grasped, to be exploited. Another version says, though he had equal status with God, he did not cling to the advantages of that status. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And that's the literal translation. We often soften it to say servant, but slave has power, right? And he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Again, as Peterson paraphrases, he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a life of, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And because of that obedience, God lifted him up high and honored him beyond anyone or anything. So it strikes me that there's three things in this picture of Jesus that are clues for us how we think about this paradox. Number one, we know this about Jesus. He was absolutely secure in his status as the beloved of God. He was uh, the beloved of God and he knew it. Um, he was equal with God. And so it became his choice. Secondly, he chooses 
to set it aside and take on the status of a slave serving others. It says he took it on. He wasn't forced. He wasn't compelled. It was his choice. And thirdly, he lived obediently and he left the rest to God who, who did lift him high and honor, honored him above all others. And so if we're to think of ourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself, I think these are at least some pathways forward for us. First, we need to live out of this rock-solid identity, this holy status as the beloved of God. It says, think in the way Jesus thought, and that's what it means, that we are absolutely the beloved of God, called by name, loved from all eternity, blessed beyond our deserving. And we need to move that from a theological truth down into the core of who we are. So it frames the way we walk through the world, frames the way we see the world, frames the things we do. It grounds us. We are forgiven, free, and beloved. And if we hold on to that, we can avoid the enemy trap of feeling inferior and unworthy or that twisted sense of false humility that somehow we can get caught up in. Rooted in that security, we can choose to set aside and become a slave for the sake of others. This is easy to say, but it is actually a hard saying, this idea of becoming a slave for other people especially for groups of people who've been oppressed and disenfranchised. These are not welcome words. It's not welcome for any of anybody, but especially for those who have been forced into subservient roles, forced into serving others, both literally and figuratively. So I think the a key here is this issue of choice. Jesus isn't forced to do this. He chooses it. And that makes all the difference. We, too, can choose to set aside our rights, our privileges, our status, whatever, for the sake of others. And in humility, consider others more important than ourselves, to think more highly of others than we do ourselves, looking always to the other's interests before we think of our own interests. And third, live obediently in whatever task God gives you and leave it to him to lift you up and honor you in due time, even if not another person is seeing what you do. Do you know what's interesting to me is that I, I actually read a fair amount of leadership literature. I want to be a good leader and I, I read these, lots of these books. And do you know what I've been fascinated about recently? Is that some of the work that's coming out now about great leaders is turning conventional wisdom on its head. And when you uncover it, it's surprising to me how similar it starts to sound to the ancient wisdom of scripture that we've just read, just using different terms, modern terms, more, I don't know, more, um, oh, what's the word? Just a lot of jargon, but it's, it's interesting to read. 
So here's what I was reading not long ago from a professor in Georgia. Her name is Carla Northcutt. The goal of many leaders is to get people to think more highly of the leader. The goal of a great leader is to help people think more highly of themselves. This is a quote that's spreading all over the internet as if it's original. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Philippians, don't you think? The conventional stance in the old days, and maybe not so old, of many bosses is this. Your job is to make me look good. Ever heard that? I have. Some of the literature now is saying, though, in the leadership field, that the most effective leaders, their goal is to make their team look good. That effective leaders look for ways to exalt those around them. And in the process, their own standing rises through the accomplishments of others. The mark of a truly effective leader I've been reading is not what he or she accomplishes on their own, but what they empower others to do. Fascinating. Eh? Collins, Drucker, all these gurus saying this. It takes a strong person to feel secure enough personally to help others get ahead, to help others advance. And so we come back to the text. Where does that security come from? And I think this is the key for believing people. Not in our own accomplishments, not in our own abilities, our status, but in that rock-solid identity as the beloved of God. Nothing left to prove. I love the quote of Philip Yancey when he says, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. Nothing we can do to make him love us less. Absolute security in the grace of God. So circling back to the issue of ambition... I learned a lesson, actually many, that I've continued to try and come back to when I lived in Indonesia. I was not always dean of a seminary. Um, there were many years of my life when I served um, with my family in Indonesian Borneo in a small village. And there were times, I confess, when I felt like the circle of my influence was very, very small. I'm near the jungle. I have my family. I have a women's Bible study group. I have a small village church we're involved in. And there were times when I thought, I wonder if there are other things I could be doing. I think we all think that from time to time. And God so clearly said to me, as if it was audible, Janet, you take care of the depth of your ministry. And I'll take care of its breadth. <laughs> and I have tried to live that way, and I encourage you to think about it wherever you are, whatever job you have, whatever vocation or ministry or studies you have, is God calls us to take care of the depth of our ministry. And we leave it to him to take care of its breadth. Because I know even in my own life, my 
one could say my circle of influence has expanded. But I've had different seasons of life, and it will be different again. And when we're in our old age, should we live that long, our circle may become very small. Some people, I have a good friend who's an invalid. She would think her circle is very small. But our ambition should be to take care of the depth of our ministry and leave it to God to take care of its breadth. So I say to you, whatever your role, whatever your circle, whatever your aspirations, do, do be ambitious to take care of living of the depth of your ministry to being as faithful as you possibly can. And as for ambition, I think the key in the text is the verse that says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And that means being ambitious for ourselves. But I have come to believe there is a holy ambition, and that is being ambitious for the kingdom of God ambitious for the kingdom. So I come back to the two students and the question that was mused at that time. Does one of them need more ambition? Does one of them need less ambition? That's not the question. The real question is this. Are you ambitious for the kingdom of God? I ask yourself as a student, students here, school is a very competitive environment where we can become very, very ambitious in that environment. Is it selfish ambition or is it ambition for the kingdom? And those of you who are staff and faculty here today, think about your own work. Are you ambitious? The big question, are you ambitious for God's kingdom? Because when we're ambitious for God's kingdom, we can do a whole lot of work that sometimes might be tedious, sometimes might get us thinking about, are there bigger and better things for me? But when our ambition is for the kingdom, we can join in a community and together be ambitious to see God at work here. When I think about our future at Tyndale, Seriously, I am filled with this excitement and conviction that we are at the verge of a whole new chapter where God is going to expand our circle of influence in this city and in this world. And so I think this can be a text that can remind us in our ambitions for Tyndale. May it be ambition for the kingdom of God May we be able to live as a community here in the same way that Paul's talking about it in this text. Sharing in the spirit, doing nothing for our own selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, thinking of others, I'll look around, more highly than we do of ourselves looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. I have come to believe it's possible to be humble and ambition, ambitious. 
but it has to be a true humility, not the false humility of the enemy. And it needs to be ambition for the kingdom of God. May God help us live that way. Let's pray. God, you have laid out before us through your Apostle Paul a model of how we can be as a community at Tyndale, in our church communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families. But you have done more than speak through Holy Scripture. You gave us your son, Jesus to show us how to do it. And God, we come today as a community confessing that we so often fall short, collectively and individually. And God, we need your empowering. We ask for it. We ask that you would form us into a people with holy ambition for your kingdom, who take on the, serv- the status of servant to one another, Believing that when we do, you will lift us and lift this community high and exalt it and expand its circle of influence for the kingdom. Help us to be faithful to that. In your name we pray. Amen.